0: Turn with me in sacred scripture to the end of Numbers chapter 23, Numbers 23, verse 27. we We're going to read from there into chapter 24 through verse 11, and that section will be the text for the sermon this morning. This is the history of Balak and Balaam. You remember that story, children? The Israelites are near the end of their journey to the land of Canaan. And by God's power, they've defeated everyone in their path. And Balak, the king of Moab, sees the handwriting on the wall for him. And he thinks, I need to do something here to prevent my own destruction. And so he hires this sorcerer, Balaam, thinking that he will be able to force God to curse his own people and therefore allow Balak and Moab to defeat Israel. This account that we're reading here this morning is the third attempt at that. Numbers 23, beginning at verse 27. And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee into another place. Peradventure it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. And Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor, that looketh toward Jeshimon. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said. He hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open, And now what follows is the blessing. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! As the valleys are they spread forth as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of line aloes which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath as it were, with the, hath as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, and as a great lion, who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. And Balaam said unto Balak, Spake I not also to thy messengers, which thou sentest unto me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of mine own mind. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. To that point we read the sacred Scriptures. Beloved of God, at the beginning of the portion of Scripture that we read, Balak, the king of Moab, is quite frustrated. Two times now already, he has expected that Balaam, an internationally renowned sorcerer, would be able to corral Jehovah God under his own control and force God to curse Israel so that he, Balak, and his kingdom Moab would be able to defeat Israel. But God will not be corralled, and instead, God corrals Balaam, and through Balaam, he speaks words of blessing upon his people. Balak thinks in this last third attempt that maybe if I bring Balaam to a new place, maybe somewhere up really high the top of this Mount Peor where he can see all of Israel in the valley down below, then maybe that will allow him to corral Jehovah and curse Israel. But as they begin the same old process that had taken place the two previous times, it's clear that in Balaam's mind, he's already given up. He realizes that God is not going to curse his people, and it says that in the first verse of chapter 24. Pleased God when he saw that he pleased God not to curse his people, he just abandoned all the other things that he had done before. He gave up all of his incantations, his enchantments that he would go through, and he just went through the motions and said, I know how this is going to end anyway, but if Balak Wants to try again, so be it. Hopefully, I can get some of that money he has offered to me. And just as Balaam knows is going to take place, so it does. God again blesses his people. And with the blessing that God gives to his people through this unregenerate man who sees. With the eyes really of God for a time, Balaam is, as it were, overcome. And he shouts, he exclaims, how goodly are your tents, O Jacob, and your tabernacles, O Israel. May that message of blessing that God gives to His church that applies to His faithful and true people in every age and place, be an encouragement to us this morning, to our homes and home life, and to the family that brings a child for baptism this morning. We'll take it up under the theme goodly tense. Goodly tense. The meaning, the reason, and the result. In this vision, God gives Balaam to see not merely the physical Israel that was down there below him in the valley, but the true Israel of God, God's true people from really every time and every place, the character of them, he's given to see them the way that God sees them. He's given eyes to see spiritual things spiritually for a moment, even though he's not regenerate. You can be convinced that that's what's happening to Balaam by thinking briefly for a moment about what Balaam says he is seeing because it doesn't match at all what he's seeing with his physical eye. We read in verse two of chapter 24 that Balaam lifts up his physical eyes and he sees Israel abiding in his tents down in that desert, that wilderness down there below But when he speaks about what he's seeing regarding those tents, he exclaims, how goodly are your tents? Oh, Jacob, he's overcome by it. These tents are astounding. How goodly they are. Goodly means how pleasant, how lovely, how beautiful, how strong, how unique they are. And what in the wide world would there be? About these physical tents in the valley that would ever lead Balaam to say such a thing. Nothing. Israel's tents were not beautiful. They were not unique compared to other tents. In fact, physically speaking, they were old and dirty. They were organized well around the tabernacle to be sure. But nothing that could be seen with the naked eye there would have ever made anyone exclaim like this. Wow, these tents are amazing. They're lovely and compared to all the other tents I've seen in my life. These are really something. They'd been through the wilderness for 40 years. These tents were beaten by the sun. They were ragged. And what about what Balaam says about the setting of those tents? We read in verse 2 that Balaam set his face toward the wilderness where those tents were. With his physical eye, he saw all of those tents down there in the middle of a dry desert. Verse 28 of chapter 23 calls it Jeshimon, which means wasteland. These tents are in a wasteland. And yet when Balaam speaks of what he is seeing... He says that he sees rivers and he sees lakes and water everywhere. And he calls these tents in the middle of all this water, gardens by the river's side, trees of aloe and cedars that are by the water. He sees these tents in the setting of a valley full of life-giving water. The only explanation for this is what we read in verse 2. The Spirit came upon him momentarily, not to regenerate him, but to give him this sight. So that, verse 4, he's in a trance, although his eyes are open, and he sees Israel, he sees the church as she is, ideally, spiritually. He's seeing her the way that God Himself sees her. Balaam the son of Beor hath said, the man whose eyes are open hath said, The main thing he sees with this spiritual eye is the pleasantness, the loveliness of the homes and the home life of God's faithful people. How goodly are your tents. The tents are the homes. How goodly is your home life, Israel, Jacob? He describes what he sees about the homes in Israel and the home life with poetic beauty. He uses four images in verse six. And notice that at the beginning of each one of them, there is that little word as. He's comparing the tents, the homes to these images. These tents are as this. They're as this. They're first as the valleys spread forth. What is a valley known for? It's known for its lushness as opposed to the barren hills that are about it. These tents, these homes, are secondly as gardens, he says. Lush gardens with greenery, with life pleasing, flowers of beautiful colors, sweet-smelling aromas, well-watered. Three, these tents or these homes are as trees of line aloes, the trees being referred referred to there are trees that are known for their fragrance, sweet-smelling fragrance. And then fourth, these tents or homes are as cedar trees, great strong trees. He's describing, in poetic terms, the spiritual strength, the loveliness, the vitality, the fruitfulness, the richness, the beauty of the covenant home. What a goodly, pleasing, lovely, beautiful, unique, strong thing is a Christian home in covenant with God. The covenant home, beloved, is an absolute miracle of God's grace. It is a countercultural wonder. It is a taste of heaven on the earth. In the middle of this desert, spiritual desert in which we live, this waste howling wilderness, the Christian home is lush with life and beauty. A Christian home where husband and wife are faithful to each other in spite of the difficulties that they face in their marriage and in their home life. Recognizing that Christ is faithful to them and so faithful to each other. The Christian home where children are growing under faithful parental care, teaching, and discipline. Lots of sin to be sure, but they're growing under the power of word and spirit in this home, where the word rules in this home, where every thought is being taken captive unto the Lord Jesus Christ, where the fruits are being seen, spiritual fruits, as children are repenting of their sins, as they're expressing in their own way faith. A lush garden is growing there. Children are learning that the whole world doesn't revolve around them but to give themselves unto others in service of the great God who has overflowed in mercy to them. The bond of true God-given love is there in real, intimate fellowship. There's the sweet fragrances that rise in this lush garden that is the Christian home. The fragrances of prayers and of praises to Jehovah God as Christian songs, the Psalms of Zion are being sung and lifted up to Jehovah there as sweet-smelling fragrances to Him. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. Psalm 118. His children are growing like aloe trees and like cedar trees. Sweet fragrance of worship to the Lord. Strong, being rooted in His Word and truth. The shutting of the front door on that covenantal home is a symbol for the shutting out of a world view that is anti-God and His Christ. A shutting out of worldly priorities, of worldly goals. There's a spiritual safety here. And not only homes with a marriage and with children in them, but the home of a single person too. Think of the difference that a Christian single person's home is in comparison to the single person's home of a non-Christian. What's happening in the homes of the unbelieving world for a single child of God? And the Christian single says, not in this home. This home is to be a lush garden unto Jehovah God, consecrated unto Him. Not just if I'm married, or if I have children, but in singlehood too. And you see, beloved, this is a stark contrast to anything that even Balaam has ever seen before. He's astounded by this. Because you have to understand that paganism is utterly destructive of the home, and of home life. That was the case then, it's the case now, even if it goes under the banner of enlightened civilization. Part of the worship of paganism was prostitution and every form of immorality you could think of. That did not build a home, it destroyed a home, and it destroyed marriage. Part of the worship of idols included the offering of children often as burnt sacrifices to appease. This is home life in paganism. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, Proverbs 3, verse 33 says, and Balaam could see that in his life, and now he's seeing something totally different. He's never seen something like this. He's never seen a home that is like this before. God's blessing is in the habitation of the just. The other side of Proverbs 3, verse 33, and Balaam is seeing what that looks like. Once the vision is over, He goes back to his hardness of heart and in fact in the next chapter he's going to attack Israel but it's striking where he decides to attack Israel. He attacks Israel in the next chapter in Israel's homes and home life. The very thing that he saw in this vision that he knew this is the strength of God's people. This is the heart of of what makes them who they are. I saw it in this vision. And so, this is where they need to be attacked. This is where they need to be undercut. This is what will weaken them if you can't get Jehovah to go against his people, then destroy their homes. That will make them weak, Balak, and then you will be able to overtake them. But he saw for a moment in this vision as God himself sees. He's speaking for God now in these words. Goodly... Pleasant, lovely, unique, strong, beautiful is the covenant home, the tents of Israel. Tents, plural, Balaam says. Homes, plural. The tabernacles, plural, of Israel. Balaam doesn't just see one tent. He sees the tents gathered together. He doesn't see one tent off by itself, but he sees all the tents gathered together. He's seeing something of the church and the homes of God's people gathered together. That's the significance, too, of the fact that all the water that he sees is not running out there, but the water and the lakes and the rivers are all right there in the camp as these homes are gathered together This water that feeds these tents so that they grow lush and strong, producing this beautiful garden in the midst of this wilderness. It's right there. As they're gathered together. There's something of the life of the church there and the means of grace in the church and the water that flows in the church that as we're gathered together That water feeds the homes so that they grow as these gardens, lush and beautiful unto the Lord. It's like Psalm 128. The first four verses are all about this same thing, about the goodly tent, the covenant Christian home, and its godly family life. And then verse 5 says this, The Lord shall bless thee this way out of Zion. The Lord will bless your home this way, out of the church, out of, not all off on your own by yourself, but together in the life of the church. Balaam saw the tents ordered in their tribes around the tabernacle together being grown lush this way. Can you see this? By the power of that same Spirit, beloved, Prophets of God as you are by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Can you see what Balaam saw? With the naked physical eye, you can't see it. There's nothing really unique about the houses, the tents of God's people in themselves. There was nothing unique about those tents that Balaam saw physically, that were Israel's themselves. What's different about your house compared to any other house? You drive down the road, you can't say, well, I see the, the color paint on this door and look at the shutters there. This is a covenant home here. This is a Christian home to be sure. There's nothing different. It's the exact same. But with the eye of faith, Amongst God's faithful people you can see something unique, something astounding, something beautiful, and to see it is to exclaim about it how lovely this is, how beautiful this is, how astounding, how unique, in contrast to homes of the unbelieving world, where perhaps Husband and wife are on their second or third or fourth marriage. Where there's the using of one another for one's own ends. For as long as that can take place, and then I'm out of here. Or where there's not even really the concept of marriage at all anymore. A recent article in Time magazine said that among the millennial generation, not even getting married, and the reason, according to Time Magazine, is this quote: "Because marriage is becoming less highly regarded. In fact, many term marriage itself barbaric." End quote. The sexual revolution of the '60s and '70s is coming home to our culture. of children, why is it the case that the effects upon children are so great in this day and age, the increase of mental problems in children, sex trafficking, horrible, horrible things. Is there not at least to some degree? a connection to the breakdown of family life. Children are off on their own. That they're not raised in a a home. And in contrast, beloved, think of the faithful covenant home. and What a beauty it is. What a marvel of grace it is. Is not the antithesis So clear in the home life of the world compared to the faithful people of God. Oh, there is sin in the Christian home. Absolutely. Sometimes even the same as in the world. But may there be pure words of return, of repentance, and of amendment of life. And I know that even in the faithful Christian home, sometimes you say, our home feels like it's just limping along but he sees his own work in the faithful home, beloved. He sees his own work of grace there. He sees the image of his own self, the triune God in the life of that home. Father reflecting something of the fatherhood of God. Children reflecting something of the son. And mother reflecting something of the bonding and nurturing power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand the uniqueness of the true real covenant home in the midst of this wilderness. It's, it's a marvel. It's a wonder. And all over the world, God has these real Christian homes. Homes that externally don't look anything different from any other home around them. Though they might look different from your home, in some places it's a hut. In some places it's a... Cement-walled little building with a thatched roof. In other places, it's on the 99th floor. In some places, it has decorations on the inside that would be very, very strange to you. Languages that you can't understand. By the power of Word and Spirit, a covenant home. That's its own unique Thing that can't be put into any other category except this is a home in covenant with Jehovah God. You can't put it strictly into political categories. It doesn't fit. It's not a Democrat home or a Republican home or a whatever else home. It's not merely a cultural home, a Chinese home or an American home or a European home. Or it can only be termed a covenant home lush and beautiful. This ought to encourage you, people of Jehovah God, that God sees this about the covenant home. This is His message. His eyes are in Balaam's eyes for this time. Maybe you say about your house in which your home is. My house is really quite like Israel's tents. It's old, it's kind of run down. Doesn't matter. If there is this life within it, it's absolutely beautiful. It's stunning. It's glorious. Marvelous. In the eyes of God Himself. Maybe you say, my home is new. It's beautiful. My house almost brand new, to look at it as beauty. Good. But it's what's inside. And if there is this, it's lush and beautiful. Green. Growing. Flowers. Fragrance. Aloe. Cedars. Beautiful. Strong before the Lord. And if on the inside of our homes, beloved whether they are more like Israel's tents or they are, to the physical eye, beautiful. If inside our homes there is nothing different from the homes of this world, nothing goodly for God to see spiritually, then we'd better wonder if we're part of the Israel of God at all. And come to Him humbly in repentance, seeking His grace and his word and his way. The covenant home is a unique thing. It's not a perfect thing. It's a sin-filled thing in itself. But it is a unique thing by the spirit of Jesus Christ. By what's going on in it, it's different. He sees, Dad. Isn't that encouraging? This is God's Word. God's eyes. Though you're shut inside this home and nobody else sees what's going on inside of there. He sees, Dad. You're leading of your home in devotions as His eyes scan across the world and all the homes in the world, they, they look inside. And He sees. There's a Father He's leading his home in the Word. He's opening the Word into the best of his abilities, bringing that Word to his family, and he's leading his home in accord with it the best that he can. He sees, Mom, When nobody else sees your tireless labor for the service of your family, your love, your nurture, your care, your honor of him. Children, this is an encouragement to you. He hears your songs that you sing in your home. They rise up to Him. He's aware of them. Here's your prayers that you pray. And even if your mom and dad chuckle a little bit when you pray at night because your prayer is kind of cute. It is. But God takes it very seriously and so do your parents. And it's lovely to Him. And He calls it goodly, beautiful, pleasant. This home is lush, With spiritual life. Single member. You too. Isn't this an encouragement? My home, He sees. He sees my dedication to Him. My prayers to Him. That I'm living different from the unmarried in the world. The priorities in this home are different. The way I spend my time is different. He sees and it's lovely. It's beautiful to Him. Because these people who are nothing in themselves, God has taken up and He's built this marvelous thing, this lush garden, this spiritual, beautiful, tree-flowering place in the midst of this wilderness where no gardens exist, where rivers and, and waters are not, where there is only dry and desert How does he? How are Jacob's tents goodly? How are Israel's tabernacles lovely? How is it that there's water and rivers there flowing in the midst of these tents gathered together so that these homes can grow up as individual gardens lush to the glory of Jehovah God? We can say three things. First. In general terms, it's only because of God. Verse six, verse six, which the Lord hath planted. Verse eight, God hath brought him forth out of Egypt and made them this. God has taken these homes out of the bondage of sin and planted them in this oasis that He gives to them. God makes them these things that they are. God does this. Second by blessing these homes. Remember that Balaam is declaring what is the blessing of God upon Israel. God's blessing, beloved, realizes what it is saying. His blessing is powerful. Yours and mine is not, really. After somebody sneezes, we say, bless you but it doesn't really do anything. It's a nice thing to say. But it doesn't actually bless them. It doesn't actually confer some blessing upon them. Not so with God. When God blesses, the blessing actually comes as a power so that it creates what is being stated in the blessing. He says, Homes, rise up in the midst of a wilderness with lush beauty, strong, fragrant unto me. And they do. He says, waters flow, lakes, rivers flow in the midst of those homes gathered together. And they do. To feed those homes, to grow in the Lord. Third, we can say how this happens is because these blessings that come from God alone are granted through and by the head of the covenant, Jesus Christ. These blessings flow, beloved, as blessings of the covenant of grace. You'll notice that in verse 9, Balaam, totally unbeknownst to him, repeats over Israel one of the blessings of the covenant God gave to Abraham. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. That's Genesis 12, verse 3, which Balaam has no idea of. God has put this word into his mouth. This is a blessing. What you're seeing, Balaam, about Israel is because I have established my covenant with them. And one of the promises of my covenant is to save in the line of generations, to be a God to them, their seed after them. And that promise, like all promises, comes to them in Jesus Christ, the head of the covenant, the king of the kingdom. And Balaam sees that too. Balaam sees in the second part of this vision that there's a king that's going to come out of this people. This nomadic tribe that nobody cares about, that the whole world would forget about, that is not really of any consequence to look at them physically. A king's coming greater than Agag. It's coming in the future. What Balaam has seen so far has been all in the present. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob. The valleys are spread. But then he switches to the future when he sees the reason, the ultimate reason. And he speaks in the future tense. There's a king who will come. He shall come and he shall be higher or greater than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Verse 7. What a thing to proclaim over this ragtag bunch of people out there in the wilderness who've never had a king before. I see a king coming out of the midst of this people. A king greater than Agag. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the people who attacked Israel on their way to Canaan when they received water from the rock. The first group to attack Israel. Agag then and Amalek are a picture of the spiritual forces that are against God's people on their way to the heavenly Canaan. And this king who's coming is going to be greater than Agag. Stronger than him. He's going to be God Himself, who is greater than Agag, but God Himself. He's going to come right into the midst of Israel, He's going to come low as though a part of them, and he's going to redeem them. He's going to die on the cross, taking the sins of his people upon himself, and he's going to rise again the third day in victory, and he's going to go to the right hand of Jehovah God, and he's going to rule, and with all the blessings that he's earned in his death, he's going to pour them out upon this people, and that is the ultimate explanation. For why there is water there in the midst of this camp, and for why that water feeds these homes to be what they are, lush and beautiful to His glory. You see, you have to ask yourself as you're reading the text, where does all that water come from? That living water that flows in this setting It turns this desert into an oasis in the camp of Israel and and feeds these homes. And the answer is in verse 7. He, the king, shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall grow in many waters." The image is of a man who has a pole over his shoulders as they did in those days. And on both sides of those poles are hanging these wooden buckets full of water. And the king, as it were, will carry the water of life, says Balaam. And he's going to overturn his buckets. And they're going to flow into this camp of Israel. So that the seeds that are there, the children of that covenant will grow up in the midst of that water and it will sprout and it will produce in all these tents this lushness, these aloe trees and cedar trees. That's what he sees. And isn't that precisely what happened this morning? Dead not the king Overturn his buckets so that in the, in the rivers of the water of baptism flowed the river of the waters of grace into the camp of Israel gathered here this morning. And doesn't he do that every Lord's Day, that homes fed by that water, seeds in those homes might grow lush gardens to his glory. All this ought to encourage us, beloved. that This is what God is doing. And this is what he sees as the work of his own hand in the midst of his people. And it ought to give us the courage and the conviction to go forth with joy to live as a covenant home, to say, I want it to be the case that as he scans his eyes over the homes of the earth, that when he lights his home, his eyes upon my home, this is what he sees. And if there's things then that I need to remove out of my home, then I'll do it. But pour out thy graces, rivers, O Lord, that my home may be this, a garden lush, to Thy glory." The result of this grace in Christ flowing from His buckets earned upon the cross, becoming rivers of water in the church so that homes are gardens with cedars and aloes, the result of all of this is actually that the church herself rises in strength in the midst of the world. Verse 7 continues. His kingdom shall be exalted, 8 and 9. He, Israel, hath as it were the strength of a unicorn or a wild ox. He shall eat up the nations his enemies and shall break their bones and pierce them through with arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, as a great lion. And who shall stir him up? That is, who has the courage to attack him, knowing who they are now? So that you see, it's not only the case in this vision and blessing. That the setting in which the homes are found feeds the homes, but the homes then in return strengthen the whole lot so that the church is strong, a kingdom, a wild ox. so that the devil himself flees as he is resisted in that place. It's a symbiotic relationship, you see. The church is used to strengthen the homes, and the homes then strengthen the church. This is the way of Israel on her pathway to Canaan. Never perfect. Always sins and struggles, never fully, until the new heavens and new earth when the rivers flow without any restriction, in the garden, gardens flourish without sin and stain. But she is this in the midst of the world. In spite of her sins and failures, God makes her this, and she's lovely to Him. She's beautiful to Him, pleasing to Him. May God grant it, and he grant that we return encouraged, strengthened, that this is what he's doing, and that this is what he sees, and live in our goodly tents to his glory. Amen. Father, add thy blessing to the preaching of thy word, and for the glory of thy own name.